Section six of a Master of Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Master of Mysteries by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter four. The Eight Mile Lock. Part two. I went quickly to bed, and tired after my long pull, despite the originality of the situation, fell fast asleep. Suddenly I awoke. Someone was bending over me and calling me by my name. I leapt up, and not realizing where I was for the moment, but with a sort of dim idea that I was engaged in some exposure, instinctively seized the man roughly by the throat. In a moment I remembered everything, and quickly released my grip of poor old Jimmy, who was gurgling and gasping with horror. I burst out laughing at my mistake, and begged his pardon for treating him so roughly. "'It's all right, sir,' he panted. "'I hope I didn't frighten you, but I've heard it again, not five minutes ago.' "'The deuce you have,' I said, striking a match and looking at my watch. It was nearly two o'clock, and before the minute was up I heard distinctly a cry, as if from some great distance, of, "'Lock! Lock! Lock!' And then all was silence again. "'Did you hear it, sir?' whispered the old man, clutching me by the arm with a trembling hand. "'Yes, I heard it,' I said. "'Don't you be frightened, Jimmy. Just wait till I get my clothes on. I'm going to see this thing through.' "'Be careful, sir. For God's sake, be careful,' he whispered. "'All right,' I said, slipping on some things. "'Just get me a strong boat-hook, and don't make too much noise. If this mystery is flesh and blood, I'll get to the bottom of it somehow. You stay here, and if I call, come out.' I took the thick, short boat-hook which he had brought me, and softly, unlatching the door, went out. The moon was now riding high overhead, and casting black fantastic shadows across the little white cottage. All my senses were on the keenest alert. My ears were pricked up for the slightest sound. I crept softly to the bridge on the upper gate which was open. I looked upstream, and thought I could see some little ripples on the surface of the water, as if a swift boat had just passed down but there was no sign of any craft whatever to be seen. It was intensely still, and no sound broke the silence save the intermittent croaking of some bullfrogs in the dark shadows of the pollards on the further bank. Behind me could also be heard the gurgling twinkle of the overflow through the chinks of the lower gate. I stood quite still, gripping the boat-hook in my hand, and looking right and left, straining my eyes for the slightest movement of anything around, when suddenly— Close below me from the water, inside the lock, came a loud cry. "'Open the lock! For God's sake, open the lock!' I started back, feeling my hair rise and stiffen. The sound echoed and reverberated through the silent night, and then died away, but before it had done so I had sprung to the great beam and closed the upper gate. As I did so, I caught sight of the old man trembling and shaking at the door of the cottage. I called to him to go and watch the upper gate and racing down to the lower ones, wound up one of the sluices with a few pulls, so as to let out the water with as little escape-room as possible. I knew, by this means, if there were any creature of tangible form in the water, we must find it when the lock was emptied, as its escape was cut off. Each of the following minutes seemed stretched into a lifetime, as, with eyes riveted on the dark water in the lock, I watched its gradual descent. I hardly dared to think of what I expected to see rise to the surface any moment. Would the lock never empty? Down, down sank the level, and still I saw nothing. A long, misshapen arm of black cloud was slowly stretching itself across the moon. 
Hark! There was something moving about down in the well of darkness below me, and as I stood and watched I saw that the water was uncovering a long black mass, and that something ran slowly out of the water and began to clamber up the slimy, slippery beams. What in the name of heaven could it be? By the uncertain light I could see only its dim outline. It seemed to have an enormous, bulbous head and dripping, glistening body. The sound of a rapid patter up the towpath told me that the old man had seen it and was running for his life. I rushed down to where the thing was, and as its great head appeared above the edge, with all my force struck it a terrific blow with the boat-hook. The weapon flew into splinters in my hand, and the next moment the creature had leapt up beside me and dashed me to the ground with almost superhuman force. I was up and on to it again in a second, and as I caught and closed with it, saw that I had at least to deal with a human being, and that what he lacked in stature he more than made up for in strength. The struggle that ensued was desperate and furious. The covering to his head that had splintered the boat-hook was, I saw, a sort of helmet, completely protecting the head from any blow, and the body was cased in a slippery, closely-fitting garment that kept eluding my grasp. To and fro we swayed and wrestled, and for a moment I thought I had met my match, till, suddenly freeing my right arm, I got in a smashing blow in the region of the heart. The creature uttered a cry of pain and fell headlong to the ground. Old Jimmy Pegg had hurried back as soon as he heard our struggles, and knew that he was not dealing with a being of another world. He ran up eagerly to me. "'Here's your ghost, you old coward,' I panted. "'He has got the hardest bone and muscle I ever felt in a ghost yet. I am not used to fighting men in helmets, and he is as slippery as an eel. But I hope to goodness I have not done more than knock the wind out of him. He is a specimen I should rather like to take alive. Catch hold of his feet, and we'll get him inside and see who he is.' Between us we carried the prostrate figure inside the cottage and laid him down like a log on the floor. He never moved nor uttered a sound, and I was afraid at first that I had finished him for good and all. I next knelt down and proceeded to unfasten the helmet, which, from its appearance, was something like the kind used by divers, while the old man brought the lantern close to his face. At the first glance I knew in an instant that I had seen the face before, and the next second recognized, to my utter astonishment and horror, that it belonged to Ralph Viner. For the moment I was completely dumbfounded, and gazed at the man without speaking. It was obvious that he had only fainted from the blow, for I could see that he was breathing, and in a few minutes he opened his eyes and fixed them on me with a dull and vacant stare. Then he seemed to recall the situation, though he evidently did not recognize me. "'Let me go!' he cried, making an effort to rise. "'My God! You have killed me!' He pressed his hand to his side and fell back again. His face was contorted as if in great pain. There was obviously only one thing to be done, and that was to send for medical assistance at once. It was clear that the man was badly injured, but to what extent I could not determine. It was impossible to extract the slightest further communication from him. He lay quite still, groaning from time to time. I told Jimmy to go off at once to Farley and bring the doctor. I scribbled a few directions on a piece of paper. The old man hurried out of the cottage, but in less than a minute he was back again in great excitement. "'Look here, sir, what I have just picked up,' he said. "'It's something he has dropped, I reckon.' As Jimmy spoke he held out a square leather case. There was a monogram on it. I took it in my hand and pressed the lid. It flew open, and inside, resting on its velvet bed, lay the glittering circlet of diamonds. 
I held Lady Ridsdale's lost bracelet in my hand. All my suspicions were confirmed. Viner was the thief. Without saying a word, I shut the box and dispatched the old man at once for the doctor, bidding him go as fast as he could. Then I sat down by the prostrate man and waited. I knew that Jimmy would not be back for at least two hours. The gray dawn was beginning to steal in through the little lattice window when Viner moved, opened his eyes, and looked at me. He started as his eyes fell on the case. "'You are Mr. Bell,' he said slowly. "'Risdale told me that you were coming to the Theodora on purpose to discover the mystery of the lost diamonds. You didn't know that I should give you an opportunity of discovering the truth even before you arrived at the houseboat. Bend down close to me. You have injured me. I may not recover. Hear what I have to say.' I bent over him, prepared to listen to his words, which came out slowly. "'I am a forger and a desperate man. Three weeks ago I forged one of Risdale's checks and lessened my friend's balance to the tune of five thousand pounds. He and his wife were old friends of mine, but I wanted the money desperately, and was impervious to sentiment or anything else. On that first day when you met me, although I seemed cheery enough, I was fit to kill myself, I had hoped to be able to restore the stolen money long before Risdale was likely to miss it, but this hope had failed. I saw no loophole of escape, and the day of reckoning could not be far off. What devil prompted Ridsdale to bring those diamonds on board, heaven only knows. The moment I saw them, they fascinated me, and I knew I should have a try for them. All during that evening's festivity I could think of nothing else. I made up my mind to secure them by hook or by crook. Before we retired for the night, however, I thought I would give Risdale a chance. I asked him if he would lend me the exact sum I had already stolen from him, five thousand pounds, but he had heard rumors to my discredit and refused point-blank. I hated him for it. I went into my tent under the pretense of lying down, but in reality to concoct and, if possible, carry out my plot. I waited until the quietest hour before dawn, then I slipped out of my tent, waded into the water, approached the open window of the Countess's cabin, thrust in my hand, took out the case, and going down the river about a quarter of a mile, threw the diamonds into the middle of the stream. I marked well the place where they sank. I then returned to my tent and went to bed. You know what occurred the following morning. I neither feared Risdale nor his wife, but you, Bell, gave me a considerable amount of uneasiness. I felt certain that in an evil moment on the night before I had given you a clue. To a man of your ability the slightest clue was all-sufficient. I felt that I must take the bull by the horns and find out whether you suspected me or not. I talked to you, and guessed by the tone of your remarks that you had your suspicions. My relief was immense when that telegram arrived, which hurried you away from the Theodora. On the following day I returned to my own little place on the banks of the river, four miles below this lock. I knew it was necessary for me to remain quiet for a time, but all the same my plans were clearly made, and I only waited until the first excitement of the loss had subsided and the police and detectives were off their guard. In the meantime I went to see Ridsdale almost daily and suggested many expedients for securing the thief and getting hold of the right clue. If he ever suspected me, which I don't for a moment suppose, I certainly put him off the scent. My intention was to take the diamonds out of the country, sell them for all I could get, then return the five thousand pounds which I had stolen from his bank, and leave England forever. As a forger I should be followed to the world's end, but as a possessor of stolen diamonds I felt myself practically safe. My scheme was too cleverly worked out to give the ordinary detective 
a chance of discovering me. Two days ago I had a letter from Ridsdale, in which he told me that he intended to put the matter into your hands. Now this was by no means to my mind, for you, Bell, happened to be the one man in the world whom I really dreaded. I saw that I must no longer lose time. Under my little boathouse I had a small submarine boat, which I had lately finished, more as a hobby than anything else. I had begun it years ago, in my odd moments, on a model I had seen of a torpedo used in the American War. My boat is now in the lock outside, and you will see for yourself what ingenuity was needed to construct such a thing. On the night before the one which has just passed, I got it ready, and as soon as it was dark, started off in it to recover the diamonds. I got through the lock easily by going in under the water with a barge, but when I reached the spot where I had sunk the diamonds, found to my dismay that my electric light would not work. There was no help for it. I could not find the bracelet without the aid of the light, and was bound to return home to repair the lamp. This delay was fraught with danger, but there was no help for it. My difficulty now was to get back through the lock, for though I waited for quite three hours, no boats came along. I saw the upper gates were open, but how to get through the lower ones I could not conceive. I felt sure that my only chance was to frighten the lock-keeper, and get him to open the sluices, for I knew I could pass through them unobserved if they were open, as I had done once before. In my diver's helmet was a thick glass face-piece. This had an opening, closed by a cap which could be unscrewed, and through which I could breathe when above water, and also through which my voice would come, causing a peculiar hollowness which I guessed would have a very startling effect, especially as I myself would be quite invisible. I got into the lock and shouted to Peg. I succeeded in frightening him. He hurried to do what I ordered. He wound up the lower sluice, I shot through under water, and so got back unseen. All yesterday I hesitated about trying the experiment again. The risk was so great. But I knew that Ridsdale was certain to see his bank-book soon, that my forgery was in imminent danger of being discovered, also that you, Bell, were coming upon the scene. Yes, at any risk, I must now go on. I repaired my light, and again last night passed through the lock on my way up by simply waiting for another boat. As a matter of fact, I passed up through this lock under a skiff about eleven o'clock. My light was now all right. I found the diamond case easily, and turned to pass down the stream by the same method as before. If you had not been here, I should have succeeded, and should have been safe. But now it is all up. He paused, and his breath came quickly. I doubt if I shall recover, he said in a feeble voice. I hope you will, I replied. And hark, I think I hear the doctor's steps. I was right, for a moment or two later old Jimmy Pegg and Dr. Simmons entered the cottage. While the doctor was examining the patient and talking to him, I went out with Jimmy to have a look at the submarine boat. By fixing a rope round it we managed to haul it up, and then proceeded to examine it. It certainly was the most wonderful piece of ingenious engineering I had ever seen. The boat was in the shape of an enormous cigar, and was made of aluminum. It was seven feet long, and had a circular beam of sixteen inches. At the pointed end, close to where the occupant's feet would be, was an air chamber, capable of being filled or emptied at will by means of a compressed air cylinder, enabling the man to rise or sink whenever he wished to. Inside the boat was lined with flat chambers of compressed air for breathing purposes, which were governed by a valve. It was also provided with a small accumulator and electric motor, which drove the tiny propeller astern. The helmet which the man wore fitted around the opening at the head end. 
After examining the boat, it was easy to see how Viner had escaped through the lock the night before I arrived, as this submarine wonder of ingenuity would be able to shoot through the sluice gate under water while the sluice was raised to empty the lock. After exchanging a few remarks with Jimmy, I returned to the cottage to learn the doctor's verdict. It was grave, but not despairing. The patient could not be moved for a day or two. He was, in Dr. Simmons' opinion, suffering more from shock than anything else. If he remained perfectly quiet, he would in all probability recover. If he were disturbed, the consequences might be serious. An hour afterwards I found myself on my way upstream, sculling as fast as I could in the direction of the Theodora. I arrived there at an early hour, and put the case which contained the diamonds into Lady Ridsdale's hands. I shall never forget the astonishment of Ridsdale and his wife when I told my strange tale. The Countess burst into tears, and Ridsdale was terribly agitated. "'I have known Viner from a boy, and so has my wife,' he exclaimed. "'Of course this proves him to be an unmitigated scoundrel. But I cannot be the one to bring him to justice.' "'Oh, no, Charlie, whatever happens we must forgive him,' said Lady Risdale, looking up with a white face. I had nothing to say to this. It was not my affair. Unwittingly I had been the means of restoring to the Ridsdales their lost bracelet. They must act as they thought well with regard to the thief. As a matter of fact, Viner did escape the full penalty of his crime. Having got back the diamonds, Lord Ridsdale would not prosecute. On the contrary, he helped the broken-down man to leave the country. From the view of pure justice he was, of course, wrong. But I could not help being glad. As an example of what a desperate man will do, I think it would be difficult to beat Viner's story. The originality and magnitude of the conception, the daring which enabled the man, single-handed, to do his own dredging in a submarine boat in one of the reaches of the Thames, have seldom been equaled. As I thought over the whole scheme, my only regret was that such ability should not have been devoted to nobler ends. End of chapter 4